Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to a five-part series on supply chain data management. This series is sponsored by Ascent Compliance. Ascent Compliance provides cloud-based SaaS solutions that help companies manage their supply chain data, facilitate stakeholder and supply chain education on regulatory and program requirements, and increase transparency between businesses. Ascent helps companies overcome the challenge of meeting their compliance business requirements. The uh, Finally, Ascent streamlines the data exchange process for suppliers, making it easier for them to comply with their customers' data requests. For more information, check out their website, ascentcompliance.com. In this podcast series, I visit with several members of the Ascent Compliance team to visit about supply chain data management. We consider the synergies between different types of compliance disciplines, the impacts on organizations of compliance failures in this area, and what are some of the drivers for continued legislation and regulation in this area. It is a fascinating series. I know you will enjoy it. Thank you very much for listening. In this third episode, I visit with Travis Miller. Travis is the General Counsel at Ascent Compliance, Inc. and Director of Ascent Compliance USA. In this episode, we consider the synergies between the emergence of supply chain risk and the compliance response. This podcast series is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Today, I have with me Travis Miller. Travis is the General Counsel at Ascent Compliance, Inc., and the Director of Ascent Compliance USA. Travis and I are going to take up the topic of synergies between compliance. So, Travis, first of all, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure. Well, Travis, I wanted to just jump right into it by starting with what do you see or how did you see uh, compliance evolving to perhaps the state it is now? Yeah, sure thing. I know um, an interesting bit about uh, compliance, uh, environmental laws generally even, uh, is that they never really happen in a vacuum, right? Um, There's always some type of a hallmark or a signature event that then prompts action. Uh, because prior to that, you know, everybody thinks everything's going pretty all right. Uh, you know, industry's working. Um, you know, there's no real grievances. Uh, you know, the public hasn't really gained a lot of um, impetus to drive change. So if you kind of really look back, uh, this is really the third environmental movement that we're seeing uh, in front of us today. Um, you know, the first is really conservation. You know, there, there was times when... Uh, People were coming into the United States, um, you know, different new world areas, and um, they were eradicating populations. You know, you saw the buffalo almost go extinct. You know, carrier pigeons were completely wiped out. uh, And, you know, native lands were kind of being taken apart. Um, So this is really where, you know, Wildlife Conservation Acts, uh, you know, preservation, the national park system, all that started to develop in kind of response to those particular issues. Uh, the second big environmental movement was signature by, you know, the 70s, the 60s, um, uh, those types of errors. You know, you get your Clean Air Act, you know, coming out of all of the uh, pollution discharges in the industrial Midwest, you know, building everything. Uh, also creating so much sulfur dioxide that it's melting statutes um, inside of New York, inside of Washington, D.C. Um, so much car traffic uh, over in L.A. and the Pacific Coast. 
that the air emissions are so toxic in L.A. It's the equivalent of smoking several packs of cigarettes a day, just breathing the air. Um, so you get the cleaner act gets passed, and now you get catalytic converters. You know, you get smokestack scrubbers. You get clean air act permits that are start to get required. Um, same thing's true. Clean water act. Uh, you know, the Cuyahoga River catching on fire in Ohio um, became such a signature event. You know, when water's burning, that's generally thought of as pretty bad. Uh, so the consequences to pass laws to try to prevent that from occurring again. Um, this is where the Clean Water Act came, you know, point source discharges, all that type of nature. Um, we're in the middle of a very similar event right now. Uh, it's the drivers that are causing things like uh, the reach regulation, uh, you know, controls on electronics waste through restriction on hazardous substances, transparency initiatives, looking at how products are produced through labor. Uh, you know, there's actually a time not too long ago where, you know, the United States Tosca legislation was kind of the dominant product compliance law. And what it did uh, was make uh, companies innocent, essentially, until proven guilty. You had to find that a certain substance, a certain chemical, a certain product was causing so much harm that it was worth taking it out of the market. Europe really kind of changed that over the last few years by putting it into something called the precautionary principle. Meaning that now, when they looked at the entire global economy, the average human being was getting exposed to like 2 million chemicals a year. And we had safety information on less than 1%. So they said, we're, we're no longer going to take that stance because there's so many chemicals, you know, and there's these big surges of heart disease, and, you know, autism in children, cancers. You know, maybe we should make companies prove that those chemicals are safe before we wear them on our body. Before we ingest them. And that really became the birth of this next environmental movement. And then that kind of carried on and uh, well, how are things getting produced? Are they being produced by slave labor in countries? Uh, there are other areas. And this is a lot of the transparency disclosure initiatives kicking in and so on and so forth. So you know, that's really the background that led us to where we are today and what's driving a lot of action and what's really kind of garnered the ethos of the population. So, Travis, how did supply chain risk emerge as a business continuity risk? Yeah, um, you know, I'd say it's a, really a byproduct of outsourcing and globalization. So what really happened over the last 20 or 30 years is companies couldn't quite keep up with all the environmental laws. You know, they were concerned that uh, we may not be able to operate or turn as much of a profit if we had to say, for example, decrease or put a multi-million dollar investment into the factory to retool it uh, to make sure it wasn't discharging the smoke stacks or you know the uh, methyl ethyl deaths and whatever chemical it is you choose into the atmosphere, um, so we outsourced to a lower cost jurisdiction. You know, we built our factories in places that were outside the jurisdiction of the countries that had a lot of those environmental controls in place or had a lot of those labor practice controls in place. And this really became you know, how the third world started to lift up and industrial manufacturing happened. Um, but without any kind of regulations and rules, we started to have those same toxic substances coming into the country. But there was no way to regulate them. You couldn't regulate an overseas manufacturer you couldn't regulate the practices that they were putting people under to produce the product. 
Um, in fact, the only thing that you had jurisdiction over was the physical product itself. Oh, it was coming across the port. So what happened there, you know, in reaction to all of this, you know, regulators started to think, uh, policymakers started to think, and they came to the conclusion that what we can regulate is the product and the supply chain for how to produce that product and the components that were used to produce that product. Basically, every input that went into making the product that you now want to sell inside of this jurisdiction, we can control. And, and that's where supply chain risk in the compliance space really started to develop and where it's kind of surged over the last 10 years. So maybe you could uh, tie those two up what may appear to be disparate strands together, uh, Travis, by explaining how industry standardization and uh, has really led to a series of best practices for managing supply chain compliance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, practically speaking, um, these laws regulate everything, everything you can think of, you know, from uh, the chemical itself, the chemicals getting mixed together, to every single thing that's produced from chemicals. So that's the, the nut that goes inside the washing machine, the washing machine itself. Um, and they all have disclosure initiatives. So if you think about that, you kind of have a bit of a diamond shape in the supply chain. There's a few people that can do extractives. They're going to get you the metals, the ores, uh, the basic minerals, and those get turned into chemicals. So then they have a larger group there and then, it goes into component manufacturing, and then those component manufacturers then uh, have to provide information to all of the OEMs, basically anybody that makes anything out of that washer or that nut. And they have to give you all the substance information you need globally. So practically speaking, if every single one of those OEMs is going to ask for information in their own format, the own way that they want, uh, whenever it is that they want, it becomes impossible. You would spend your entire day, um, entire departments, entire companies dedicated just exclusively to communicating that information. And it's just practically speaking, not possible. Uh, so industry standardization made it possible. They said, if you just produce this one format, this one document in a way that everybody can ingest it, or everybody agrees is acceptable, at least, now you can communicate that to everybody, and it gives you a fighting chance to be able to meet the requirements of all these various companies and all these various uh, industry sectors and silos. So with that, Travis, does that message really resonate uh, in your experience with the business community of, of tying those two together and helping companies understand not only their legal obligations, but actually how to move forward in a more business-efficient manner? It is. You know, businesses are really, really good at understanding efficiency, even if they don't always understand you know, the nuances of a regulation or a requirement. Um, and nothing really speaks to the business community better than saying, hey, if you continue on the path that you're on, you're going to spend a million dollars a year on this. If you take this industry standardized approach, we can cut that down by a 5x fold. We're going to save you a bunch of time, a bunch of money, a bunch of internal resources. Uh, and that's really what drives the business community to take these types of industry standardized approaches and these types of decisions. 
Well, Travis, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I've been visiting today with Travis Miller. We took a look at the synergies between compliance topics. I hope you'll join us tomorrow and our next episode where we look at organizational impact of compliance failures. Travis, I look forward to continuing the conversation. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Supply Chain Data Management sponsored by Ascent Compliance. I hope you'll join us again for another episode. You can find out more about Ascent by checking out their website, ascentcompliance.com. This special five-part podcast series on supply chain data management is a special presentation This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.